Good morning, Grace Church. How are you? Well, it's good. It's good. It's good to see you. Uh, my name is Josh, and I'm one of the pastors here. And I'm, I'm bringing a little water. I have a non-COVID-related cough. I, I, I promise. Uh, promise. I promise. I promise. Uh, it's good to be with you. We got new month, new stage design, new sermon series. This is exciting. So uh, if you have a Bible, would you grab it and turn to Mark chapter 1? If you need a Bible, we have people in the back that would love to give you one. You just have to raise your hand and they will toss you a Bible. Mark chapter 1 will be there for the foreseeable future in the life of the church. So, uh, as you're getting ready, this, this is going to feel different. Uh, it even feels different for me as a communicator. Oftentimes we want to come up and want to tell a compelling story to get your attention and make you laugh and do all those things. So uh, this is going to feel a little different. We're just going to dive in and go for it. And, uh, and, and right away, like, get comfortable in the book of Mark. We're going to be there uh, for a while. I want to give you a, a resource if, if you want to walk through this book. It's called Jesus the King by Tim Keller. Uh, they tell you to hide your sources. I, I am not hiding my source. If you read this, you're going to be like, Josh is not smart at all. Like, he just took what Tim Keller said and then just, like, told it to us uh, totally. And I'm just going to tell you, like, Double dip, like jump in to that book as well. Jesus the King, you're going to love it. It's going to be awesome. Um, sermon series are important in the life of the church where we would pick a topic. Here's how sermon series work. Pastors, they pick a topic and we walk through it uh, believing that we, we feel like this is going to bless the church and help the church. Uh, and that's, that's based on what we're experiencing as your pastors. Going through books of the Bible is different because it basically says this. We have no idea what to do, so we're just going to open the Word of God and see what happens. So that's kind of where we're headed today. So we did not strategically think like, uh, oh yeah, you know what's going to bless Grace Church on the first Sunday of February, like Mark chapter 1 verse 1. We didn't think that. We just said like, let's open the book of Mark and go for it together. So uh, as, as we start this, everyone has asked me, why are we choosing the book of Mark? So I want to answer a few questions as we go through uh, as a way of introduction to get us where we're going. So Mark, the Gospel of Mark, it is, is the earliest gospel written in the New Testament. And 90% of the book of Mark is found in the other gospels. So Matthew, Luke, and John are called the synoptic gospels. Synoptic means like a sequence that they can be seen together. Mark stands alone, different than the synoptic gospels. And 90% of the book of Mark is in the other Gospels, And so we are going to dive into this hoping, my, this is my prayer, that as we walk through the book of Mark, we would become fluent in the way of Jesus. Because God is doing something in Jesus that we're going to see in the book of Mark that we need to study, we need to learn, and we need to become uh, people to ultimately join in on. But this is going to feel like a different language a little bit that we have to learn together. Uh, but in order for us to learn that language, we've got to see it in its original context that the book landed in. So when I was in school, uh, when our teacher was going to teach us something that, that might require some brain power, uh, they would ask us to put on our thinking caps. Do you guys remember that? Am I the only one? I'd be like, I'm, like, I'm not doing it, teacher. I don't have a thing. It was always for math. Like, put on your thinking caps. Um, so at, at, the, at the risk of being cheesy, Grace Church, would you put on your thinking caps for seven minutes? That's it. At, at, at minute eight, we'll take it off, okay? But I need seven minutes of thinking cap. Pin out, journal ready, seven minutes. You got seven minutes? Yeah, you do. You could do it. You're, you're way better than me. So here we go. Thinking caps on. Who wrote the book of Mark? 
wow. These thinking caps are working. They are working already. Widespread evidence from the early church fathers affirmed that Peter, the apostle Peter, best friend of Jesus, Peter, that he passed on reports of the words and deeds of Jesus to Mark, and Mark wrote them down. Early church father, I told you put on your thinking caps, A.D. 130, early church father named Papias, he wrote this. He says this, Mark wrote accurately all that Peter remembered. So, so he's referencing that, that Mark has done this. And as you go through the Gospel of Mark, you're going to see that Peter, uh, nothing happens that Peter is not present for. Peter is always there in the story. 130 A.D., Mark wrote accurately everything that Peter remembered. 170 A.D., 40 years later, another church father named Irenaeus, he wrote, And after the death of these, Mark, the disciple and the interpreter of Peter, he also transmitted to us in writing the things Peter preached. So you got guys in the early church saying, this is an authoritative, Holy Spirit-inspired word of God from Peter to Mark to us via God. Uh, if you are looking for baby names, I suggest to you Papias or Irenaeus would be really solid baby names uh, for any unborn young men in the future. So I don't have a lot of jokes in this sermon, so that was about as good as it gets right there. The early church readily accepted the Gospel of Mark to be written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as an eyewitness account of the Apostle Peter. And in its original context, it would have been seen as the first authoritative testimony about Jesus. That's what you're holding in your hands. The first authoritative testimony about Jesus. Written by John Mark, spoken by Peter, seen as authoritative and inspired in the early church. Amen. Amazing. Now, you know who wrote it. Let me ask you this. Who was John Mark? Thinking Capstone, I'm going to tell you three significant things about John Mark. So if you're ever watching Jeopardy, you got it. You ready? Three significant things about John Mark. Number one, John Mark belonged to an important founding family of the early Christian church. You see this in Acts chapter 12, verse 12. This is crazy. This is so beautiful. It's likely that Jesus and his disciples met at John Mark's house during the last week of Jesus' life. So John Mark's house is likely where the upper room is. This is where they took the Passover meal, where they gathered together for Jesus' ascension and possibly the place where the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples. The, the disciples went to Mark's house in Acts chapter 12 after they escaped from prison. This was a hub of ministry in Jerusalem. Can you imagine hosting the Last Supper at your house? It's pretty cool, right? You're like, hey, the disciples are coming over for dinner, and it's like Jesus shows up and performs the Last Supper in your living room, and you're like, sorry, Mom, I had no idea that this was going to go down. But he's an influential leader in the early church, and his house was a hub of ministry in Jerusalem. Number two, Mark is an eyewitness to Jesus' death and resurrection. Mark traveled with the disciples. Though he was not one of the 12, he traveled with them. And there are major events in the story that he actually saw with his own eyes. He's there at the crucifixion. He's there at the resurrection. He's there in the upper room. He was around this stuff. And again, because he lived in Jerusalem, his house was a hub of ministry in Jerusalem. Number three, Mark experienced failure in his own discipleship. Mark goes on Paul's first missionary journey, and then he turns around due to hardship or disease, or maybe Paul's personality was too hard for him. I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. Either way, he has to leave the first missionary journey because of the stress and the danger, and he's a young man. He can't do it. 
And then later, Paul says that Mark is not worthy of going on the second missionary journey, which creates a rift in the book of Acts between Paul and Barnabas. If you have any background in the church, you might have heard this. That fight that they have is over Mark. It's over this guy. And then later in uh, Paul's final letters in like Philemon and Colossians, he references John Mark and says, would you send him to me? He is a fellow worker in the ministry. So John Mark sees the full circle of failure, go home, come back, actually you are faithful. This is the guy that wrote this story. He sees it full circle. So we know who wrote the book, Peter to Mark to us. We know a little bit about him. And now let's talk about the type of book that this is. What literary genre is the book of Mark? Well, there's a couple things that make this book unique from any other book in the New Testament. One of the things that makes it unique is the word, it's a Greek word, euthuse. You guys want to try to say that? Euthuse. 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 Isn't that fun? It, like uh, this week, if your kids aren't getting to the room quick enough, you say, get in here, euthuse. Here's why. Euthuse means immediately or straight away, right now. And the, the, the word euthuse shows up 42 times in the Gospel of Mark and only 12 times in the remainder of the New Testament. 42 times in the book of Mark. 12 times the rest of the New Testament. Breathtaking speed. I have to deliver something to you right now. So the Gospel of Mark, here's how it reads. And Jesus did this, and Jesus did this, and Jesus did this, and Jesus did this, and he did this, and he did this, and he did this. If you guys read the book of Mark, you're like, what is happening here? It is fast-paced, breathtaking speed, and it's unlike any other Gospels. Um, this summer, I had a friend tell me that I should read the book Lonesome Dove. You guys read Lonesome Dove? If don't, okay, don't. It's a uh, 800 page book. I listened to it on audio book. It's a 37 hour audio book. It is not breathtaking speed. <laughs> the book of Mark is nothing like Lonesome Dove. This is like Born Supremacy meets Fast and Furious meets Mission Impossible meets 007. That's, that's the book of Mark. Breathtaking speed, fast paced action. And that's what makes it unique in the Gospels. The second thing that makes Mark unique is that in this document, Mark introduces a whole new literary genre to the history of the world. So what you're about to gauge in, it's not, it's, it's not memoir, it's not biography, it's not self-help, it's not drama, it's not fable, it's not fairy tale, it's not fantasy, it's not even history. The literary style of the book of Mark is called gospel. And that is unlike any literary style that the world had known before them. It's so cool. There's a story about J.R.R. Tolkien, the guy that wrote Lord of the Rings. He's having a conversation with C.S. Lewis, the guy that wrote Chronicles of Narnia or Mere Christianity or Great Divorce or all these other books that no one ever reads but quotes all the time. Right? Haha, second joke, not that good. C.S. <laughs> Lewis, the most not read quoted author ever. Uh, so they are friends, and Tolkien is a believer, and C.S. Lewis is not a believer, and J.R.R. Tolkien is sharing with C.S. Lewis about the gospel, and C.S. Lewis is like, I can't believe it, it just sounds all made up. And here's what Tolkien says to Lewis about the gospel. He says this. He says, the glory of the gospel story, therefore, is, is that it is the true myth. It's the myth that became fact. It's the fairy story incarnate in primary reality. That's the genre of gospel, is that it reads unlike any other story. It's a myth that is true, and this is why C.S. Lewis later, when he becomes a Christian, he would often write about the deeper magic, that his story is actually telling another story. 
And, and the Lord of the Rings is telling another story. That's what kind of genre this is. Gospel genre is designed to focus all of its attention on the person and work of Christ. And something is happening in Christ that seems so unbelievable it's too good to be true. And so the gospel's purpose is to show you that Jesus has done something that you might believe what he's done. It's persuasion, it's testifying, it's converting, it's convicting. That This was written so that you might believe the purpose of this, that you're reading it and that we're preaching it is this, so we might believe. This book is intended to testify unto belief. So you're like, Josh, I brought my friend here today. Are you trying to convert them? Uh, hello, friend. Yes, I'm trying to convert you actively. I'll just tell you. Like, I'm going to actively try to convert you for the remainder of this sermon. And the book of Mark is actually designed to try to convert you. It's a persuasive document. I want to convert everyone in this room again to believe in the person and work of Jesus. And I'm preaching that I might believe again. That's the design of the book. And Tim Keller, my friend here that I've told you all about, he has a quote. He says this. He says, when you share the gospel with someone, share it in a way that even if they don't believe, they walk away wishing it were true. When you share the gospel, share it in such a way that even if they don't believe, they walk away wishing it were true. So if you're here today and you don't believe, welcome. This, it's safe for you to be here. But my hope is that when you leave, you're like, man, I wish that were true. How cool would that be if that was true? And that by God's grace, you would see that the myth is actually true, that the fairy tale is actually ultimate reality. So we know who wrote the book. We know the purpose of the book. We know a little bit about him. We know what type of document it is. Now let's talk about when it was written. Now most scholars say the book of Mark was written in A.D. 65. I told you I needed seven minutes. You have done your job. It's been seven minutes. Take your thinking cap off. You ready? Okay, we're done with all that. Take your thing, think you kept off. I don't know what happened in the room. Did you feel it? It's different? Okay. <laughs> Thank you, media team. That was on purpose. That was designed for effect. Most scholars believe the Gospel of Mark was written in AD 65. Now, I'm joking to take your thinking cap off because I need you to feel this. I don't, I don't need you to, to think about this. I need you to feel this. This is significant that it was written in A.D. 65, because in A.D. 64, the great fire of Rome happened. There's been an art depiction of the great fire of Rome. The fire burns for six days. Don't have it? Okay, great. There it is. Just looks like flames. Great. The great fire of Rome happened in A.D. 64. It burned for six days, and over 70% of Rome is in ruins after those six days. It's likely that the emperor Nero started the fire himself for political reasons, but ultimately Nero uses his power to blame the fire of Rome on this new movement called Christians. This catalyzed, in AD 64, this catalyzed widespread and horrific persecution of Christians. Emperor Nero made a spectacle of following Jesus, and Christians are having to meet underground as there is a real effort to kill the movement by killing all of them. If you are found out, you are subject to the death penalty. Christians in the early church had been having a rough year from the fire of Rome to AD 65. They held churches in the catacombs underground. People are suffering and they're hurting, but they've gathered together. They've lost loved ones. They've become in prison. They've been mistreated, yet they gather together. And these people need to be reminded of the good news that this is all worth it. They need to be reminded of something. And can you imagine for that moment 
that the year that they've had, from the fire of Rome to the gospel of Mark and the early church in Jerusalem is gathered in the catacombs. They've gathered all around and somebody shows up in that first gathering underground of the meeting and they say to the church, we have written down, we have in our hands the word of the Lord. We have Mark's gospel. Can you imagine the electricity in the room in that moment when they said, we have Mark's gospel. We have the good news that the church would have felt that in a profound way, and that's what we are holding in our hands. So as we read chapter 1, verse 1, can we feel that in the same way they would have felt that? So with all of that in mind, I read to you Mark chapter 1, verse 1. It says this. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now to us, this may not sound very special, but listen, to the early church, to the early follower of Jesus, this is what they might have heard. The God who has made the world is going to put it right again, and he is starting that process with Jesus. They might have heard it like this. The beginning of the renewal of all things starts right now. It starts in Jesus. In Jesus, we get the renewal of all things. This is the beginning of the story of what he is doing in the world. And the fifth word in that sentence is the word gospel. And in the Greek, this word gospel is the euangelion. The euangelion is what's translated in the Greek. And it was a term used in war primarily. So if your army wins, they go to battle, and and, and each team, each each, team, Each army has one person on the team that doesn't fight because they're the runner that has to go back to the capital city and and communicate the news. So you go to battle, you fight, and if your army wins, you send the runner back to the capital. And the message you've told them is, go share the gospel. Go share the euangelion. Go share the news that we have won, that we were threatened with death, but now we have victory. Something happened over here that has effect over here. That's the design of the gospel. And so if you think back on World War II and like newspaper headlines, so I brought a few of these. So newspaper headlines back then, the first one was like invasion. You see this word invasion, like we have the slide, bam, invasion. So that, that's called bad news, right? Something's going on. We're moving forward. We have to go to war. And then the next thing that's pushed forward is this massive headline that says victory. And then you feel the good news of that. And then the last one that comes along is the word peace. It's over. This is the good news. So it's important to recognize about the euangelion is it's not only good news in the form of its content. It's good news in the form of its delivery. You catch that? It's done by a herald. It's proclamation. It's, I have some news about something that I have to run and go share. And that's not what this sermon's about, but just for a moment, let me press in here. The design of the gospel is this. If you possess the gospel, you are, you are mandated to joyfully proclaim the gospel. To possess this message means to proclaim this message. Can you imagine a runner that was told to go tell the capital, go share the euangelion? They're like, nah, I just don't really want to. It just seems really private to me. No, no, no. There's been a victory won. You've got to go tell everyone. No, I like, I just, this is my personal victory. Just thank you guys for what you did for me. I'm actually just going to hang here and just kind of work on myself for a little bit. Okay, this isn't my sermon. That was a little much. Okay, yeah. 
he who has ears, let him hear, right? Okay. <laughs> Possession of this kind of message demands proclamation of this message. It's built in. It's just too good to keep to yourself. Privatized understanding of the gospel makes no sense to the early church. No, no sense to the early church. You had to proclaim it. What's interesting about the gospel is that it's shared when the victory is won, not when the victory is being fought for. War is not good news. Effort is not good news. Victory is good news. Peace is good news. And so this is what you have to understand in this first sentence of the, of the book of Mark is this. The gospel is the good news of what's been done, not what we do. The gospel is the good news of what's been done, not what we do. Mark is saying you can't do the gospel. It's already done. This was Jesus' work to do, and he is doing it. Listen to me. This is a fundamental distinction in Christianity. Every other world religion comes along and tells you what must you do to be saved, and the gospel comes along and tells you what's already been done in your place. It's the news of what's been done. Mark is not offering an opinion. He's been inspired by the Spirit of God to tell us what God has done. The gospel is not advice. The gospel is news. It's news of what's happened. It's already happened, and that's what at its core makes the gospel distinct from any other message out there. The gospel never tells you what to do. Now, you respond to it. It moves you, it transforms you, but it never tells you what to do. It doesn't come to us and say, you have a really bad past, you clean it up. The gospel doesn't come to you and say, you grab yourself by the bootstraps and you get it together because you know what, that's actually more bad news. That's not good news. But many of us believe that that is the message of the church, that you get it together, you clean it up, you get your act together, and then once you get all cleaned up, then you come to church. But I submit to you, that is exhausting Religion outside of Jesus is a treadmill of exhaustion. You never get to where you're going and it just sounds like more bad news. Can you imagine a herald, this runner, comes back to the capital city after the war and he yells this, everybody grab your sword, the enemy is coming, the one that we sent was not strong enough to save, it's now on us to save ourselves. That is not good news. <laughs> If the herald came back and said, everybody get to work, the one we sent was not strong. That's not good news. But praise God, that's not what Mark is saying. Mark is saying to a group of persecuted Christians, this sentence of great news. Mark is saying, we are witnesses of his redeeming work and God is making the world right in Jesus. All things will be made new. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is a life-giving declaration that we must learn and relearn. And no matter how long you've been a Christian, you never graduate from this message of the gospel. The great reformer Martin Luther would preach the gospel to his church every week. And his church members started coming to him and say, Martin, why do you preach the same gospel every week to us? And he said, because every week you forget. And so my hope at Grace Church is that this becomes our thing. We're like, again? I'm like, again. You're like, come on, man, like you did, you said that last week. And I'm like, just come back next week. It's coming again. Like, I don't, I, I don't have anything else to offer. And this is beautiful, and it's what Mark does, and it's so important. He tells us the gospel in the first sentence. And the next part, so let's go to verse 2. This is so important. Verse 2. It is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you, and you will prepare your, he will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. 
And so John came baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So Mark, immediately, after he shares the gospel, he immediately ties the Old Testament prophecies, quoting from Isaiah, from Malachi, from the Exodus story. He, he ties this gospel message to the Old Testament right away. He says there's a front runner that was prophesied about who was going to come and announce the arrival of Jesus. John the Baptist is that front runner. John the Baptist is the tie. He goes on in verse 5 to say more about John. The whole Judean countryside and all people of Jerusalem went out to him. This is John the Baptist. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locust and wild honey. And this was his message. After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist shows up at the beginning of every gospel and then quickly falls back into the background because he is primarily a bridge to the Old Testament. He's primarily a link to the Old Testament. He is operating like the last of the Old Testament prophets, which is remarkable because in the people of Israel, they hadn't had a prophet in 400 years. From the book of Malachi to John the Baptist is 400 years of silence. And John the Baptist shows up and Mark is saying, see, that's the bridge. That's the connection. The long-awaited one is here. And, the, and, and John's message is this. The story of the Old Testament is about to continue. And the one that's coming next is so glorious and he is so good and so powerful that I am not worthy of stooping down and untying his sandals. There's another part in the Gospels where Jesus says that no one is greater than John the Baptist who's ever been born. So Jesus is like, John the Baptist is the best there's ever been. And John the Baptist is like, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. This specific language of untie your sandals was, was reserved for the lowest class of slaves. That when wealthy people would come home, they weren't even, uh, they, they were too good to reach down and tie, untie their own shoes so their, their hands couldn't get dirty. So the slave would come and take care of this. The servant would do this. And John says, I'm not even good enough for that. That's how good this one that's coming after me is. I'm not worthy of anything when it comes to that one. That's how he addresses it in the book of Mark. In the gospel of John, when John tells the story of John the Baptist, Jesus shows up at the river to be baptized, and John the Baptist makes a declaration about Jesus that is the best tie to the Old Testament you can find. John the Baptist says about Jesus, he says this, Jesus shows up, John looks at him, whole crowd there. John says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That phrase is the best way to communicate the Old Testament tie to Jesus. Something is happening in this Lamb of God phrase that John the Baptist makes sure we understand. And for the first Christians, the early church, they would have recognized that phrase means something so significant. So I want to walk us through the significance of that phrase as it ties back to the Old Testament. So stay with me. Here we go. In Genesis chapter 1, God creates the world. The love, the joy, the community of the Trinity bursts forth in creation. Out of nothing, the world is created. God puts Adam and Eve, his first creations, in the garden. They have unhindered intimacy. They walk together naked and unashamed. It's a beautiful story. In Genesis chapter 2, there's a, a character called the serpent introduced. And the serpent, he tempts Adam and Eve by questioning God's word, saying, did God really say that to you? And the serpent makes Adam and Eve believe that God is withholding from them 
God said you couldn't eat from that one tree. I know he gave you this whole paradise, but he must not want you to be like him. He must be withholding from you. And they, they tempt them. And Adam and Eve, they take the fruit and the disobedience of that one bite, that disobedience in one man becomes a story of all of our disobedience. And naked and unashamed becomes ashamed and uncovered. And in one moment, sin and death and cancer and hurricanes and tragedy and darkness and everything that we find broken in the world and in our hearts started right there with that fruit. But the good news is when they took the apple, when they took the fruit, God did not bite his nails and stress out. He pursues them. He says, Adam, where are you? He goes walking, looking for Adam. And Adam comes out in his shame, and God provides a covering for Adam. And then in Genesis chapter 3, God starts handing out the curses. And to the man, he says, you're going to be cursed. Cursed is the ground that you work in. And for the women, there's going to be pain and childbearing and motherhood. And then to the serpent, he says, you're going to be on your belly eating the dust of the, the earth. And as something happens in Genesis chapter 3, 15, it's called the proto Euangelion. The first time the gospel is spoken about is in Genesis chapter 3.15. And it says this. He's God is talking to the serpent. He says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, Eve, and between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. That is the first time the Euangelion is spoken. Something is going to happen between Eve's offspring and you, serpent, that's going to change everything. Amy and I have this painting hanging in our house because this is the story of Eve looking at Mary's stomach and Mary has her foot on the snake's head. That is the gospel narrative. That something happened in Genesis chapter 3.15 that's going to come to fruition in the gospels. And this starts, Genesis 3.15 to Mark chapter 1, starts the greatest adventure in the history of the world. It's the gospel story in the Old Testament. I, I once saw a competition on Twitter that was like, who can say the gospel in one tweet? And here was the winning tweet. Want the winning tweet? The winning tweet of who can say the gospel in one in 140 characters was this. Six words. Slay the dragon, get the girl. The winning tweet, the gospel in six words, slay the dragon, get the girl. You get it? You feel it? Who's the dragon? The snake, the serpent, the enemy. Who's the girl? The church. Slay the dragon, get the girl. And that's, that's the story. This is what Tolkien said. That's the myth that's true. Slay the dragon, get the girl. This is the deeper magic. This is the fable that's ultimate reality. This is why every time you watch a story of someone slaying the dragon and get the girl, you have to like wipe your eyes with tears. And you're like, it's actually not about the girl. It was Jesus and the church, and it's just all too much for me. Every story that has self-sacrificial love, every story that slay the dragon, get the girl, is just an echo of the real story of slay the dragon, get the girl. And that's the gospel message that we are caught up in. And it's all bound around this Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so the first kind of pillar in the story is when God goes to a man named Abraham and he tells him, hey, Abraham, I'm going to call you to be a great nation and, and you've got to leave your worldview and go leave everything behind. And so Abraham walks away and him and his wife Sarah have a son named Isaac, which is like this miracle baby. 
And God says, I want you to sacrifice your son Isaac to me. And in Abraham's mind, he would have thought, okay, that sounds cool. In this prehistoric world, God's often asked people to sacrifice their firstborn. So he takes the uh, firstborn son up to the mountain, and he raises the knife to, to kill his firstborn son. And before the knife comes down on his son, God stops him supernaturally and says, actually, Abraham, I've provided for you. There's an animal in the thicket. Bring the animal and sacrifice that instead. And if you can hear this deeper magic, God is saying to Abraham in that story, hey, I know you know what other gods are like, and I know maybe you've heard of other gods asking you to sacrifice their firstborn, but listen to me, Abraham, I am not like the other gods. I am the one that sacrifices for you. You do not have to sacrifice for me. And so the first part of this lamb story, number one, there's a lamb for a man, Genesis 22. A lamb for a man, Abraham and Isaac. That God provides for him and this promise of making a nation that's going to be blessed and that this nation would be good news to all nations, it gets going. And you fast forward through the book of Genesis and Exodus, all of God's people are enslaved to Pharaoh. This is the problem because God has made a promise that his people would be a blessing to all people. And so God sends Moses to Pharaoh, let my people go. Pharaoh won't do it. Ten plagues. The last plague, the death of the firstborn. Death is going to come, kill the firstborn in all of Egypt, but God sends a message. What are you going to do? Kill a lamb and put the blood over the door so that when death comes, it sees the blood and it passes over. And you get the story continuing, a lamb for a man, and then secondly, a lamb for a family. This is the, this is the gospel story moving forward. God is showing something. I'm not like the others. Theologically, this is called the narrative of substitutionary sacrifice. That there is a substitute that has to be sacrificed in your place because your sin costs something. The wages of sin is death, it costs something. But there is a lamb that's given in the story of Abraham and Isaac, or a, a ram in the bush, but for the, the sake of clarity, it's an animal. And then there's a lamb that's given in the Passover story. And then God's people are set free from Pharaoh. They walk through the Red Sea. They're, they're their own nation. They're wandering in the wilderness because of their disobedience. God gives them the Ten Commandments, and instantly they're disobeying all of the Ten Commandments, like we would do, right? So, so they instantly disobey that, and then God institutes a rhythm that one time a year, because of the sins of the people, one time a year they're going to have what's called the Day of Atonement, or in the Jewish understanding, Yom Kippur, where one time a year the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, and he would sacrifice an animal on the altar, and all the nation of Israel would gather and they'd sacrifice an animal on the altar and then they would come outside and they would send a scapegoat away. And this idea, this picture, is that God would provide, the, the theological word is propitiation, that, that there would be an animal dying on the altar that, that, that would be killed there, that your sin has been paid for. And they would walk outside and hit the scapegoat and that would run away. And that's, that's the theological word, expiation, that your sin is gone. God is communicating something to his people. I am forgiving you. Your sin is paid for. Your sin is gone. Once a year, they would have that, and then it would lead to this massive festival. So there was a lamb for a man, Abraham and Isaac. There's a lamb for a family in the story of the Exodus. And now there's a lamb for a nation in the Day of Atonement. And there's a model that's happening here. God's saying, I'm going to provide for you. You can't save yourself. I'm going to provide for you. You can't save yourself. And this is the rhythm of the people of God for years, for generations. A lamb for a man, a lamb for a family, a lamb for a nation. Every year, every year, every year, 
every year. And then there's 400 years without a prophet. And then there's rumors. After 400 years without a prophet, there are rumors of a young woman being pregnant who is a virgin. And they're like, hang on a second. That's, that's prophetic. Doesn't Isaiah say that the future... Messiah, because this whole story, there was always hope that one day the sacrificial system would go away. One day someone was going to come and save, and there's rumors of a virgin being pregnant. And so she has a baby. They name him Jesus. They go to Egypt for a while to run away from the, the king who's trying to kill everyone. They come back, and then this 12-year-old Jesus is at the temple, and they leave him there because that happens sometimes. So they, they leave. If you have a lot of kids, you have empathy for that story, right? You're like, I have left my kid at a farmer's market many times. Um, they leave 12-year-old Jesus at the temple. When they go back to find him there, he calls the temple his father's house. Can you feel the anticipation? Hang on a second. There's a, a lady who's a virgin that gave birth, and then there's this Jesus who called the temple his father's house. And you fast forward 18 more years. These guys are about 30 years old. And all of a sudden, there's a wild man in the wilderness saying, prepare the way of the Lord. They're like, this is all too much. And John the Baptist is in the wilderness saying, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight the path of him who comes, who, who's been prophesied about in the Old Testament from Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, all the way through Abraham and Isaac to the story of the Exodus to the Day of Atonement, year after year after year after year. Then John the Baptist comes forward, and in the crescendo of the story, all of these people are gathered at the river, and Jesus comes forward, and John makes an announcement, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. If you were a first century person, if you were a first century Israelite, and you heard that declaration about Jesus, you would have gasped. Wait, did John just call him the Lamb of God? No, not like the Lamb of God, not like the story, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John just said, God provided a lamb for a man. God provided a lamb for a family. God provided a lamb for a nation. And in Jesus, God was providing a lamb for the world. That's the gospel story. That God is renewing all things in Jesus that there is a once and for all substitutionary sacrifice that stands in our place right now mediating between the sinful people and a holy God. That right now, God is bringing his kingdom to earth in Jesus. God is setting all things right in Jesus. Everything that has been broken by sin can be made whole again. Every sickness can be healed. Every heart can be made new. Even death itself is not the end of the story. The gospel declares that there is no scenario in all of creation in which Jesus can't make it new. So Grace Church, can you feel this? A victory has been won for us. An enemy's been defeated for us. And John Mark is the herald running to the church to say, I have good news. The battle has been won and the battle has been won once and for all through a substitutionary sacrifice. We knew where the story started and this is where the story continues where Jesus has paid it all for us. But this isn't where the story ends. And I submit to you the reason why John the Baptist says I can't even untie Jesus' sandals is because he recognizes the eternal worth of Christ that we read about in Revelation chapter five. 
So I want to read to you the end of the gospel story. And it sums up this whole thing we've been working through. So feel this today, church. The, the battle has been won for you. Feel this in Revelation 5. It says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside. So I wept and I wept because no one was found who was worthy to even look inside of it. I wept and I wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. And then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Verse 6 is crushingly good news. Then I saw a lamb. looking as if it had been slain. Standing at the center of the throne encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. And the lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out by all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders, they fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals, because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and every language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priest to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I look and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousands times ten thousands. And they encircled the throne and the living creature and the elders. And in a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive the power and the wealth and the wisdom and the strength and the honor and the glory and the praise. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and under the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. So Grace Church, how do you respond to the gospel? You receive it. You go, Josh, I've already received it. Receive it again. And then you join with the elders in Revelation 5 and you worship. You bow down and worship. Something has been done for you that you could not do for yourself. And it had eternal implications. And now Jesus stands before us infinitely worthy of our worship because of what he's accomplished. So we respond in worship. So the band's gonna sing and we wanna invite you. You can come forward, you can pray, you can come forward and take communion, you can make your chair an altar. They're gonna sing three songs, which in the church world is like a lot of songs. They're gonna, like, that's like space. You have like freedom to worship and engage God. And here's the invitation. Receive again the gospel. Believe again the gospel. Grab the gospel and apply it to that place in your life that needs to be renewed. Worship. Behold, the lamb who is conquered is worthy of our worship.
Let's pray that we'd be those kind of people. Father, thank you for the good news that's been done for us. God, we know that in this time of worship, we don't have to conjure up your favor because you've given us your favor in Christ. So God, as the elders fell before you, God, we fall and worship before you. Be with us now, Lord, as we worship. Transform our hearts. God, renew our hearts again with this message. Give us new eyes to see the gospel this morning. Move us again, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name.